Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. You know, for me, one of the most poignant scenes in Blade Runner was that moment when they're on the rooftop and it was raining and and uh, they were talking about the value of life and that really our sense of value comes from the fact that there is an end point, that there is a finite amount of time. And so I was wondering if we do reach that point when we can live virtually forever, how do we still maintain that sense of purpose? With the help of uh, our therapists, of course, maybe <laughs> AI therapists, um, human boredom and depression uh, comes uh, even before you are close to your end of life and it comes just randomly. Uh, people can be upset, they can be angry or frustrated with anything. And if you are low on serotonin or dopamine, then uh, anything that happens, uh, encounter in an elevator, can really uh, drop your mood down. So what I think uh, we will have to do is we'll have to manage uh, our attitude, our mood, uh, artificially to make at least a certain uh, floor uh, and it, it shouldn't drop below that and then you don't have this problem of eternal life because you will always have some energy uh, to, to go forward so basically your solution to eternal boredom is being constantly high uh, constantly high or constantly <laughs> in therapy and I think uh, another solution of course is growth um, because when you think about the ideas of immortality and transhumanism immortality without transhumanism uh, is kind of uh, difficult to comprehend because millions of years just doing the same being the same it's a little bit uh, hard uh, on your imagination but uh, when you think that there are, there are challenges which we can't even comprehend right now like what I will be doing in 200 years if all these years I'm constantly evolving and upgrading myself, uh, even though it's difficult to do, then it becomes, uh, suddenly it becomes interesting, suddenly there is a point. So I think uh, for me, uh, boredom or uh, lack of purpose uh, never was a problem. I always knew that uh, there are things I can imagine, then there are things I can do and I should try doing that. I'm having a cup of coffee today in Moscow uh, with uh, Danila Medev Medevith. Medvedev. Yes, I butchered that. Uh, who is a transhumanist, uh, an applied futurologist. He is uh, involved in a number of fascinating projects from uh, cryonics through to uh, next generation interfaces. Uh, it's, it's good to meet you in person. Nice to meet you too. Thank you. We're, we're sitting in the Ritz-Carlton and uh, you know, I, I was kind of hoping they would give me the room that Donald Trump was apparently in when he was being filmed. Um, so I did have a good check around for cameras. <laughs> it, it, it's, always, it's always interesting being in Russia, you know, because I think a lot of the people in the West really have no concept of, in many ways, just how normal <laughs> it is. It is here, and yet so very different when you look at the digital ecosystem. Well, um, I'm familiar with uh, both the international digital ecosystem, the American and the Russian one and the European, or lack of uh, European digital ecosystem. Uh, I'm not familiar with what happens in China. I've heard about it um, and uh, I have WeChat on my telephone, but I don't really know how it works there. But I think that the digital ecosystem uh, 
everywhere in the world is just messed up beyond uh, all recognition. And if you listen to people like Tim Berners-Lee and Vin Cerf, they say it openly. They say that we messed up the internet, we messed up the web, we need to rebuild it from scratch. Yes. And it comes from their mouths. Uh, and I think it's true because um, uh, in my view, the biggest problem uh, in humanity development in the 20th century uh, was not when we started the Second World War. That was an obvious mistake. Uh, not when we started the Cold War, that was inevitable. It was when we messed up the computers. Because uh, uh, we remember the 20th century as the century of um, electricity, of course, uh, and the industry and everything else, but that came a little bit before that. We remember it as a nuclear age and space age. Uh, we uh, also say it's a computer and telecommunication age, but the problem is we didn't get the same benefit from computers as we uh, got before from the internal combustion engine or electricity or replaceable parts uh, and so on. So, so, so you think there could have been a parallel timeline where yes, exactly. we, That's, we could have had an alternative history? I mean, the most amazing uh, picture that you can show about what went wrong is the graph of total factor productivity, the labor productivity in 20th century. It was growing uh by the middle of the century, it was growing 5% per year. That explained why uh, in one generation from 1930s to 1960s, uh, people became so much richer. They got all the uh, home electronics, uh, they got new clothes, plastics, uh, um, jet uh, planes, uh, etc. And after that, nothing changed since 1960s to today. Uh, when you look at real uh, salaries, real incomes uh, for working class people in America, uh, they didn't really change. Maybe one percent up uh, in half a century. So in my view, uh, the point where it all went wrong was when the original vision of a computer, which was put forward by Douglas Engelbart, the inventor not just of the mouse but of the computer itself, uh, when it was forgotten. And when people said, uh, we have computers that are good enough, we have word processors, uh, we have mouse, we can point and click and copy and paste, and that's good enough. Uh, the original vision that computers should be tools for human intelligence augmentation, that you can actually run a country like in, uh, in, Ch in Chile um, uh, under Salvador Allende when they created this cyber scene um, country management system uh, which operated for two years uh, using cybernetics, um, all that was forgotten. So what we have today, we have YouTube, uh, we have Facebook, Instagram, uh, but that all uh, really reduces us to consumers. Uh, computers are not tools for thinking. And that's what the was, biggest what issue. What was Engelbart's vision? Like Engelbart's vision was that we he had a document which is described framework uh, for uh, intelligence augmentation. Um, and he said uh, there are different levels of thinking. Uh, the low level is like you operate symbols, you move words around, and uh, there are higher levels like how do you structure a team process, how you structure a strategic session, how you change an organization from one form to another. Uh, and he said we should start at the bottom. We should uh, give people computers because it's much better than using paper. And he succeeded in that. And everybody else said we don't need any more inventions from you. Thank you very much, Mr. <laughs> Engelbart. And um, then he was prevented by a number by intellectual property issues, by personal issues. Many people uh, on his team, uh, they went through uh, EST uh, personality growth trainings and they suddenly realized that they are all superstars and so they abandoned Engelbart and went to a different uh, research facility. So uh, he really didn't know what to do because uh, 
at one point everybody was listening to him and uh, saying uh, wonderful stuff please do more of that and then at the next step uh, different people came on the scene people like Steve Jobs Steve Wozniak with mini computers and Engelbart kind of lost track uh, he was still a guru he was still awarded National Medal of Technology by Bill Clinton in 2000 but uh, nobody was really uh, implementing his ideas and his ideas were uh, let's just start with simple stuff and uh, automate it and then create uh, more advanced tools so that we can think more complex concepts so that we can move our ideas our models of the world into computers so, so he was beyond just processing numerical process it was actually almost semiotic process exactly but you know it's a really a cultural issue because um, uh, after a few years uh, Xerox got hold of all the uh, intellectual property from Engelbart and Xerox had a lot of wonderful people in park um, in California but they were trying to sell this idea of computers to the higher-ups and higher-ups they didn't really use uh, computers they didn't use um, typewriters but they all had wives and the wives were former secretaries Right. So uh, the vision of computers which succeeded was computer as a typing machine, as a typewriter. But uh, computers were originally intended as uh, enhancement uh, instruments for our brains, for our minds, for top managers, for presidents, for chief scientists, and they didn't get any special uh, computers. If you look today what Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin is using, they're using the same computers as everybody else same uh, iOS uh, smartphones, Windows machines, and of course they get it printouts. That's a very narrow definition of a computer though. I mean, if you think about a computer just as not the, it's just an endpoint to a complex cloud-based computation system, then in a sense you're using uh, the cloud to run a company. The key is the interface, because the interface is the narrow point. Right. Uh, you can have uh, an amazing computer, I mean, you uh, literally have access through your smartphones to all the supercomputers in the world. If you had the money and the rights uh, to access them, you could use them. And uh, if I give you access to them, what would you do? Nothing. Because uh, without the interface, like for example Google Translate, which can translate uh, text or audio, you cannot do anything. So the key, because the key problem, the key narrow point becomes the interface. And with the interfaces, uh, the problem is we've been sold um, this uh, vision of pointing and clicking, but it was just one layer of what Engelbart proposed, because he didn't want us to work on formatting, on fonts, on colors, uh, on printouts. Uh, he wanted to, us to work on uh, mental structures, like uh, when you invent something, you have uh, a system in your mind, and then you put this system uh, through the interface to the computer, and then you can see it. Uh, this is something which people today called digital twins but they usually talk about digital twins for real life objects like industry 4.0 yes like and a factory or a ship uh, or like logistic systems but um, what is interesting is when you think about a digital twin for a laboratory for example or for a strategic project or for a national program because that's where the complexity is uh, it's easy enough to build a factory we know how to do that the Chinese they know how to do it but what you're talking about is more of a complex ecosystem uh, ecosystem of abstract things or uh, abstract concepts right. because uh, when you think about concepts like innovation uh, dig digitalization uh, digital transformation change initiative all these things they are not real they're not uh, physical they're mental and uh, the deficit the shortage that we have is the shortage of tools to actually manage the abstractions
Um, and it would be okay 100 years ago when uh, everything was relatively simple and comprehensible. But today we have climate change, we have uh, digital technologies, we have uh, nano uh, AI biotechnologies. All these different issues, they are so complex that we can't really comprehend them. And we need the tools. We don't have the tools, then everything devolves into political infighting and chaos. This is, this is a fascinating concept. Um, but part of the challenge is, is that if you can if you can define the complex problem easy enough to be represented in an interface, then to some extent it's complete, you've solved the problem. Uh, you're right uh, if you're thinking about the traditional interfaces. Uh, we are all familiar, I mean, this is, um, we're just talking words, it's audio, we, so I cannot show it, but I'm sure that everybody who listens to this saw science fiction movies uh, which show futuristic computer interfaces. Any film you, you like, uh, Ender's Game, uh, Avatar, uh, Star Wars, James Bond movies, uh, all the Marvel uh, films, everything, uh, everything uses the same vision of what <laughs> the computer should be like. I've actually had some of the people who design those interfaces on, on this podcast before. Uh, so, th th as you say, there are specialist agencies that invent fictional interfaces. Yes, and then everybody else is led to believe that this is kind of real, this is how it sh functions. Uh, I, uh, one week ago, we went uh, to the exhibition Atom Expo uh, of the Russian Atomic Energy Corporation in Sochi, and uh, half of the screens were running uh, things literally ripped off uh, from uh, Marvel films or from <laughs> Minority Report. Uh, you know, this black background, uh, bluish uh, things rotating, uh, charts going up and yeah, down, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, I mean... Pseudo-interfaces. Pseudo-interfaces. And they were really fake. There was nothing behind them. You could click maybe like you had three options and you can choose uh, 100 megawatts, uh, 200 megawatts, 300 megawatts. And depending on which button you pressed, you had a slightly different video playing on the screen. But I mean, it was completely fake. And uh, the biggest challenge uh, in my view of uh, our generation, of our um, civilization at this point, is to actually make computer interfaces powerful uh, as portrayed in the science fiction movies. And I think I know how to do that because we did the prototype and we did the system so which is, actually this works. This is this new project you're working on, right? Yes, and we are really pushing this uh, towards uh, applications in Rosatom uh, Atomic Energy Corporation because they are doing the most complex stuff in Russia, atomic uh, stations and also military uh, things related to nuclear weapons and also space applications for atomic energy. And uh, they have extremely smart people, an extremely big organization and relatively successful because they're building uh, power stations around the world. And what they don't have is they don't have a good framework for managing innovations. Mm. They're using uh, innovations from the Soviet era from 1980s, uh, maybe 1990s a little bit. And uh, my vision is that if we can teach those people to think in a different way, thanks to intelligence uh, augmentation, uh, graphical interfaces, then they will be able to really uh, explode uh, in a good sense uh, their creativity. <laughs> and then we can copy that to, a to all the different organizations uh, like in aviation, in logistics, um, in biotech, in IT, and we can make uh, computer systems much more powerful for the power users, I for people who matter. I can see how, especially as we move to virtual reality and augmented reality, we need a new set of semantics to represent information. Because there's no point just taking a two-dimensional view of the world and, and 
putting it on a virtual screen. We, we almost need a new logic of, of, of exactly. information. And uh, it's good that you bring up logic because uh, some people say that the most important uh, master dissertation, uh, master thesis of the 20th century was the thesis of Claude Shannon, who realized that you can represent uh, logical operations like or, or and, or uh, excluded or, uh, by uh, drawing them as logic diagrams, uh, right. which were later implemented as uh, logic like gates in the computer. Turing machines. Yeah. Yes, um, and what I think is... Uh, well, algebra is, is, algebra, a, is, exactly. a, is a form of two-dimensional interface. We kind of stop there, because um, we have all the different things like uh, pie charts, uh, diagrams, graphs, but all those things were invented in 19th century. We need, uh, like you said, a new semantics and a new set of tools to actually operate with these semantics. Because uh, when you think about something complex, like you have, for example, different uh, like three-dimensional uh, matrices uh, which you cross and then you filter things and you, you want to see uh, to look at the problem in different dimensions and then move something out and then group some things this is what um, Tony Stark uh, can do in his fictional interfaces but that's because they're drawn after the fact by designers but, but, but even that is, is really just a CAD diagram like an isometric uh, I mean what does what does three-dimensional algebra look like well I mean uh, for uh, for my uh, purposes even if we go from one dimension uh, like a document uh, or a one-dimensional tree uh, to a two-dimensions uh, two-dimensional screen because when you have a wide uh, screen display you can display a lot of information there like thousands of objects and if you are using a document like for example Google documents then you can only show like maybe 10 or 15 and everything all the uh, all the space is wasted so uh, we needed to solve this and this is related to one uh, science fiction idea which is kind of different uh, if you saw the movie arrival uh, then you know that uh, the extraterrestrials there they had a different uh, language for thinking about uh, the future and it the wasn't, past. It wasn't constrained by time. It wasn't constrained by time because it wasn't one-dimensional. It wasn't what they used in conversations. Uh, it, it, it was it was actually a four-dimensional interface. Yes, and uh, there was one civilization in South America, the Incas. They had uh, kipu, uh, a two-dimensional. Um, um, this is the ropes, right? Ropes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that is uh, one of the few examples maybe the only example uh, in the history of writing which is not related to uh, Sumerian uh, traditional linear uh, alphabet where you just uh, record the voice uh, record the sounds with uh, like uh, markings in the clay or markings on, a, on paper uh, and the difference here is fundamental because uh, our language it evolved when we were creating very simple stone tools uh, when we were thinking linearly uh, about very simple things today we need to think uh, very at least in two dimensions. I mean, three dimensions would be great, but uh, even two dimensions is a great mm. progress uh, uh, compared to one. And we don't have a language for that. Uh, all the uh, communications that we have, uh, it's dominated by uh, traditional linear uh, forms uh, and even some which are worse than text. Because when you think about television, about Instagram, I mean, it's extremely simplistic. Uh, even a good book from the 18th or 17th century would be better than uh, Instagram feed, uh, where you just see random pieces of uh, unrelated information. So uh, our challenge was uh, create a new kind of uh, alphabet, essentially, a new kind of language, but it's really not language, it's, it's really semantics. Semantics and uh, interface for manipulating that. You know, there's, there's a long history of futurism in, in Russia. And, uh, you know, I was amazed to discover that one of the first transhumanists uh, was a Russian from over 100 years ago. Uh, uh, Konstantin Zolkovsky and yeah, Fedorov. Uh, yeah, Fedorov. Um, 
you know, how much of that kind of vision for a, a radically different civilization was was embedded in the sense of the Russian psyche? Uh, to a very large uh, degree. Uh, in my view, when we're thinking about the future, about the, you know, competition, uh, not on the markets uh, for products or services or even platforms, but competition uh, on the market of ideas, then um, what we have is we have the traditional European civilization, which is uh, really focused on the history. So a few days ago when uh, the cathedral in Paris uh, burned a little bit, everybody was crazy because they're losing their heritage, they're losing the only advantage they have over everybody else. So they said, okay, we're going to spend billions and rebuild it. And this shows how weak they are. The Europe, they, it doesn't think about the future because there's nothing good uh, in European future. Just uh, uh, Syrians, refugees, uh, and all problems, problems, problems. Uh, Americans, they used to think about the future and they have very powerful ideas, but they're kind of stuck because um, they're afraid of uh, changing the system. And the current system, uh, they know it's not really sustainable, but they're not uh, open uh, to discuss it. Uh, the Chinese, they destroyed their heritage during cultural revolution so now they're trying to be more European than Europeans and if you go to China then you would be in the same uh, European style hotel everybody would s uh, speak uh, try speak English uh, and so I just I just heard a click of thousands of my subscribers leaving my program <laughs> but let's continue <laughs> okay then there are of course the Africans and it can be very exciting but right now it's not a very high-tech uh, future being implemented there but uh, I do appreciate the visions uh, of African continent just reclaiming the glory and that's uh, kind of exciting uh, things like New Zealand and Australia sorry about that uh, not much happening there uh, that leaves Russia and Russia was always very comfortable with uh, creating prophecies and building huge social experiments and saying, okay, we're going to change everything. And we have a better track record than the Chinese, for example, because they tried uh, to change things many times and it didn't really work out very well until the last uh, last attempt. Uh, in Russia, we had uh, many successful reforms. So uh, when uh, in Soviet time, uh, people were thinking about science and, and the future and writing science fiction, everything was really well integrated. It was really one coherent narrative. Uh, it was also progress. very romantic. It was extremely romantic and people were really appreciating that because there was something positive in the future, even if they had some problems in the, in the present, but they knew uh, what for. They knew what uh, they were struggling for and um, after the World War uh, II, uh, everybody was rebuilding uh, and then uh, we were trying to launch, um, basically accelerate uh, scientific and technological progress. And the th funny thing is when you uh, read about the original when you read the original documents by Gorbachev about perestroika, it was not about freedom of speech. It was not about political freedoms. It was uh, straightforward. It was about acceleration of scientific and technological progress. Mm. And the only problem was how can we grow the economy faster than 2 or 3%? It wasn't uh, everything is collapsing, let's rebuild it. Uh, it was in 1985. So, so you, in your view, this was not about MTV bringing down the wall. This was about accelerating the economy. It was about people not understanding what's going on, actually, because uh, their official uh, position was we need to accelerate the, the scientific and technological development and the economy and improve everything. And people started to experiment with um, changing the system. The problem is we had very little exper experience uh, experimenting with the systems. When you think about the complexity 
Axis designs, uh, which started in the 1970s, there was a European offshoot uh, in, Austria, uh, in Austria, in Vienna, uh, the European Center for Complexity Research. And people who are, uh, people like Gaidar and Chubais, they are all connected to that uh, school of thought, which was saying, we can uh, study the society. It's not that difficult. We can have models, we can understand how it works. And they said, okay, since we understand how it works, let's change it. And that's what they did in 1980s, 1990s. Uh, it turns out it's a little bit more complicated than that. But of, of course we can try again. Uh, we just need better tools, we need better theoretical models and better practical frameworks. You know, you see this in the architecture of the, the, the 60s and 70s in Russia, that sort of the constructivist. I mean, it, it really, it feels like they were building a a dream for a spacefaring civilization. Uh, it was the same in the US uh, because uh, uh, when you read about early transhumanism, uh, there is a book, A Great Mamba Chicken and the Transhuman Condition by Ed Regis, which was published in 1990, uh, and it was covering the stories of. Uh, orbital colonies, uh, nanorobots, uh, mind uploading, all the people like Marvin Minsky, Hans Moravec, Eric Drexler, all the Chronix pioneers, they were all in this book and he met all of them and they were really justifiably excited uh, by how cool it's going to be over the next few decades. It turns out they were over optimistic because the system of technological progress was not actually welcoming them. Yeah. So they had all the great ideas of artificial limbs, of robots helping humans, we're together going to space, uploading now consciousness to computers but it turns out that it was all just a vision because to implement this vision you need a system and we completely and totally lack the system today but the vision of the singularity now that's being propagated is a poor shadow of, of, of those aspirations in, in that I think it feels it's sad more, more it's like pathetic. A, it feels more like a commercial application of Google Cloud it's pathetic because uh, when you when you go back to original writings of Werner Vinge and Ray Kurzweil from the 1990s, it was all uh, optimistic. It was really showing that exponential progress is possible. And I believe that exponential progress is possible starting from any point. It's just not happening. It's possible, but not happening. And after 20 years of uh, these false promises, Kurzweil is still trying to like say, okay, my predictions are correct. Uh, you just need to interpret them in a certain way. But the truth uh, is that uh, every night years a new drug on the market costs two times more than uh, nine years before this is something we're doing something wrong so you know I, I've heard a number of stories of very wealthy tech billionaires around the world funding their own secret illegal labs pushing the limits on you know uh, uh, human experimentation life extension if we solve this based on the logic of rapidly um, accelerating drug prices it'll be for a very small number of people uh, I've heard uh, stories from my friends, uh, some of them involved in South America in projects that you describe, and uh, the main uh, takeaway is we should have done that in Switzerland. It would be several times more expensive, but at least things will be happening. Right. Do, do you think we're going to we're in, on the on the brink of seeing a dramatic increase in lifespan for some people? No, I don't. Um, I mean, uh, all the people in Russia who are extremely active in um, uh, anti-aging developments, and uh, uh, we've had we have a very big community of researchers and um, uh, of. Uh, uh, public speakers on this topic, uh, they are rather pessimistic. Because uh, in 2000, you could believe that uh, this drug or this vitamin will actually extend your life and you just need to, to choose the right one. Uh, after 20 years, it's obvious that we are not clo any closer to solving <laughs> aging than we were 20 years before that. And uh, of course, there are some radical solutions, but they're not being tried uh, 
anyway. So uh, I think that well, you you were involved in sort of the plan, the ultimate plan B, which is to chop off your head and freeze it. Yes, uh, and it you, turns you, out you have this facility, right? That you're involved. We have in. uh, this uh, facility uh, near Moscow, and it turns out it's a very good plan that we started more than ten years ago. Because uh, no matter uh, whether the progress is fast or slow, Chronix uh, uh, is always a good enough solution. Are you going to freeze your head? Of course, uh, I have my grandmother cryo preserved, uh, and uh, I have. Uh, this token on my oh, neck, yes. which uh, says, uh, uh, in case of death, uh, I should be cryopreserved. Yes, uh, uh, obviously you can't see this, uh, but uh, Danielle has got this, uh, it's like a dog tag with uh, some Cyrillic markings. And yeah, it, it says return to sender. Oh no, no I'm reading no. that wrong. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so how how swiftly do you have to act, you know, to avoid um, during twenty four hours? Uh, that's a practical uh, answer. Uh, there have been many experiments which showed that this uh, therapeutic window uh, is much longer than what people originally thought is just a few minutes. And we have recently uncovered uh, a film a tape uh, from um, nineteen fifty nine uh, from the laboratory of Negovsky who is the founder of uh, reanimatology, which is resuscitation science, uh, which was invented in Soviet Union. And uh, it is an experiment where a dog was uh, revived after one hour of being dead uh, and was revived to normal condition. So we're going to restore this uh, film um, because it's one of, I mean, there is one film uh, which is on, uh, on the internet from Bruchanenko Laboratory where they had this isolated dog head uh, and they keep it alive and then they have 15 minute uh, period uh, after which they revive a dog, a different dog. Uh, here we have um, another experiment. And I mean, it was done I, I 50 mean, years I, I, ago. I, I mean, realize this is a very existential question, but. Do you worry sometimes that you're you've just rebooting the uh, the hardware, but the actual who you are is essentially stored in RAM memory? Uh, well, like the, the, the quantum signature of your consciousness is. My friends in the wiped. U.S. who've been doing cryonics research, they told me they had to invent. Uh, special IQ tests for dogs uh, so that they can test uh, the condition before and after the experiments. Because it turns out some dogs are very stupid, some dogs are very smart, and you can't really measure uh, if you don't know this IQ uh, of an individual dog in advance. So they solved that and they realized that the dogs keep all their memories, uh, keep all, they know all the people, they know where their place is, and they behave normally, if you do the procedure normally, of course. And it's possible to revive them after four and a half hours. So that's uh, what we can currently do with uh, large animals. And with humans, they're doing experiments uh, after about one or two hours. So I think Kronix uh, is really a solution, but uh, to me, as a transhumanist, um, I have to take more responsibility. I cannot just say, okay, uh, I'm going to live my life uh, as, uh, I mean, just going around as a futurologist, telling stories about this brilliant, bright future. And then, uh, like in 30 years, I will write a couple of books, maybe give more talks, travel around the world, enjoy my life. And then I just grow old, and then I'm cry preserved, and then people in the future will revive me. Because the big secret uh, that nobody is speaking about is that we messed up nanotechnology real big. Because the total amount of money spent on nanotech is almost one trillion dollars. And we had the complete idea of what nanomachines should be like in um, 1985, 30 yeah. years ago. It was described then... Drexler's Drexler, Drexler, yeah. Engines of Creation. Do you know what Drexler is doing now to promote nanotechnology? 
not a single thing. He's <laughs> just writing articles about extraterrestrials uh, in the Future of Humanity Institute under Nick Bostrom in the UK. Because he is so, he so much lost all hope that he can persuade anyone. Even though people, uh, heads of states like uh, Bill Clinton and Albert Gore and uh, Dmitry Medvedev here in Russia, they all spoke about nanorobots, Drexler is a genius, we should fund this new exciting field, we should build nanomachines and then build things atom by atom, and nothing came out of it. So one of the things we want to do, it's not the highest priority right now, but just a side project, I want uh, to raise a new army of young nanotechnologists, people like boys and girls, uh, 13 to, 50, uh, to 15 years old, teach them basic chemistry, give them VR interfaces so they can construct things from individual atoms, and then let them design nanorobots, because the adults are obviously incapable of doing that. So that's a backup plan. And of course, without nanotechnology, we can't really revive chronic patients. So that's one more thing we should take care of. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds. Thank you.